Thank you so much for joining us here at Word Baptist Church. I'm Jamar Andrews. I'm the lead pastor, and I get the great privilege of shepherding here. I'm excited that you're joining us today for this sermon. You're about to receive text-driven preaching. My prayer is that God speaks to you through this time as you listen to this message. So enjoy, and God bless. Hey, good morning again. Um, so yeah, it, my name is Spencer. If you have not met me here, I do couple of things in my responsibility. That's our mission specifically to Japan is something that I'm over. And then also our outreach internationals in Jonesboro. And uh, yeah, Jamar this past week was in Santa Fe on a mission trip. And uh, so he asked me to preach this morning. And uh, he didn't ask me last minute. I've known him for a little while. So it's, it wasn't a surprise. Uh, but it's my honor to do this this morning. So that's just a little bit about me. Uh, I do want to recap a little bit before we get into the message for this morning. But we're going to look at Acts chapter 16. We'll start in verse 6, and we'll go through the, uh, the chapter, and uh, we're going to see that the gospel is going to go to Europe. Uh, at that time, it's a bit anachronistic. It wasn't called Europe at the time, and that's, you know, that's neither here nor there. But uh, we're going to see that Paul, and he has a few guys with him. Silas is with him, Timothy is with him, and Luke also joins him. We're going to see that they have a specific call and mission. We're going to look at that. We'll learn a little bit about it. Uh, my goal this morning is for this service to be uh, to, for to not be a super service. Uh, we'll get into it. We'll get our word, apply it, and then we'll get out of here uh, in a reasonable amount of time. But I do want to do a little recap to set up what happened uh, for today's message. So Paul and Silas are going to be on a mission trip. Uh, now, previously, Paul had gone on a mission trip with Barnabas. And uh, that was their first trip. They went all over the place. And now, uh, in just in the previous chapter, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, why don't we go back to the places that we had previously been and we'll encourage the believers in those places. And it seemed good to them, and they were trying to figure out who all should they put on their team, their mission team. Uh, now, the, the previous time they went, there was a guy named Mark who had gone with them, and he abandoned them. At a certain point, he said, I'm done. He got on a boat and left. And uh, he apparently wanted to go again. And Barnabas wanted to take him. Barnabas wanted to give this guy another shot. Paul did not. Paul did not, he abandoned them once, doing this exact same thing. Paul did not want to give him another chance. I don't think the point for us is to try to, to say who's right and wrong. I, I don't think that's the point. Uh, but what does happen is they split up over this. Barnabas takes Mark, and Paul, instead of going with them, takes Silas, and they each go on their own mission trip. And so we see, even in these you know, unfortunate circumstance, God has a plan. Things work out in the way he wants so anyways, that's just a little bit of recap. Paul ends up taking this guy named Silas with him. Along the way, they pick up a guy named Timothy. Timothy was a young Greek man. Uh, because he was Greek, there was some specific thing that had to be done to him. You can read about it. All I can say is that as a gentleman, my heart goes out to him. He took his licks, and then they went on their trip. And uh, so we're going we're gonna to pick up here in Acts chapter 16, and we'll just look at the first few verses. My point that I hope we see in this is that the Holy Spirit will guide you. As you're going about obeying him, obeying Christ, the Holy Spirit will specifically guide you. And, and let's just read verses 6 through 10. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bith Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately 
we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So we see Paul and Silas had made a plan, and apparently it involved them going into Asia. This would have been Asia Minor, but at this point in time, they didn't have our modern terminology. So it was Asia Minor. Most likely they were going to go to Ephesus, maybe, and they wanted to see the believers they had, they had preached to previously to encourage them. And for one reason or another, the Holy Spirit forbids them from doing that forbids them from speaking the word in Asia. And then they say, okay, we're going to go to a different place. And the Holy Spirit forbids them from going into that place. Now, Luke does not tell us. Luke is the guy who wrote this. He also wrote the book that's named after him. You guess what it's called? He does not tell us the way that the Holy Spirit spoke. He just says that the Holy Spirit forbid them from speaking the word in Asia uh, and then forbid, forbid them from entering a specific place. The way that it happened must then have been clear, discernible meaning that they knew what the Holy Spirit wanted them to do. They understood it. Luke wrote it down. They knew. They, the Holy Spirit forbids them from preaching the word in Asia. That might seem counterproductive. It kind of does. But God had a plan. The Holy Spirit forbid them from preaching the word in Asia and then from going into a certain place. How? Like I said, Luke does not record for us the way that the Holy Spirit. I don't think that was Luke's point. But it was clear, discernible, conspicuous. Those all mean the same thing. And they knew that it was the, from the Holy Spirit. If it was Satan who didn't want them to go in Asia, I feel like we would be reading that they were bound and determined to go in Asia. So one way or another, they knew that it was the Holy Spirit that was directing them. That's just a little point that I wanted to make. Another point I want to make is about what these men were doing when the Holy Spirit, whether he spoke or however the Holy Spirit revealed that to him, the way in which that happened, what were they doing when this happened? Were they, were they chilling, watching Netflix, waiting for... Plane tickets to materialize in their eye wallet. They were already seeking to obey what they understood Christ wanted them to do, which was to spread the gospel. The mission that he had given them, it's actually the same one. You can read it for yourself. Uh, they were trying to be obedient to that when this happened. And as they were seeking to be obedient to the Lord, the Holy Spirit was directing them. And so having been forbidden to go into these places, they kept trying new things, and their plans, the plans that they had, were foiled. But that's okay because Paul had a vision, and I'm going to say it was a divine vision, but, this, the, but Acts does not say that it was a divine vision. Acts says that Paul had a vision in the night, and they concluded that God had called them to preach the gospel to them. Now, this was a man from Macedonia. Uh, you've probably heard of Macedonia before. You may not exactly know what that is. It's north of Greece. Um, you've probably heard of Alexander the Great. He was Macedonian, actually. It was the kingdom of Greece in those days, and so you, we might kind of conflate the two, but it was its own place, and it was north of Greece. So um, Paul had this vision in the night. A man from Macedonia was asking Paul to help, and it says they concluded then that they needed to go and preach the gospel to these people. How did they come to that conclusion? How did Paul know that this division meant that they needed to go and preach the gospel to these people. Because what happened in the vision? A man from Macedonia appeared to Paul. We don't know who. And I'll just give you a spoiler. The first person that he preaches to is not a man. We'll get there. So how did Paul know what they were supposed to do? This is what I will submit to you. That Paul interprets, he interpreted, everything that happened to him through the framework of his faith. When this vision occurred, he understood it in light of what he knew about the world based on his faith in Christ. And this is the same principle that we apply. When we come to him, 
We allow him to determine the way that we see the world. Paul had a vision and he saw it. He didn't see it with Paul's eyes. He saw it through Christian eyes. When we come to faith in Christ, we allow him to determine the framework through which we see the world. The thoughts that we have, when things happen in our lives, the way we respond, the thoughts that we have, the way that we process these things, it is a Christian manner that we're supposed to adopt. We have to give up the old way of doing things and accept a Christian one. And that is how we're able to interpret events like these in the way that God intends. Because we use God's framework for understanding them. And I imagine most of us, if we read this story and you're not, and I'm not preaching it to you and you're just reading it on your own and you hear about the vision from the man of Macedonia, you would probably come to the same conclusion as Paul. Okay, he's supposed to go there and preach. Because it makes a lot of sense. They were trying to go and to spread the gospel and they were being they couldn't, trying to go different places, and the Holy Spirit did not want them to go. And then Paul has this vision. And through his faith, he's able to understand in a consistent manner what it is that the Holy Spirit wants from him. And they're going to go to Macedonia. And there's another point of application here, I think, is after seeing the vision, they concluded that God wanted them to go to Macedonia and preach. And it says, what does it say? Immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. Immediate obedience to the Lord, does it, what it requires from you is that you would trust Him. Maybe in your, in your job, if your superior came to you and asked you to do something, and you know, you might have some information that they don't have. And you might think what they ask you to do is not a good idea. And if you have a good relationship with them, you might even share, hey, have you thought about this? And plans may change. Because there's information that's shared. You know, I think it takes a really good work relationship to have something like that. And in that situation, is that disobedience? No, that's, that's crazy to call that disobedience. But the Lord does not need our counsel. He doesn't need our wisdom. He doesn't need us to let him know, hey, this is, I know you're saying this, but have you thought about? He does not need us. He doesn't need our input. What he wants us to do is to obey him. And immediate obedience like this means that you trust that he knows the odds and the ends, the beginning, all the details along the way means that you trust that he knows those things. And even if you don't, even if you don't understand the, the whole deal about being not allowed to go into Asia, you can trust him that he does know, and then you can be obedient to him. And that's what it takes to have immediate obedience. And that is the standard that we see. These men, their plan, they had a plan. They had something that they wanted to do. They wanted to go see people that they knew and liked to go in Ephesus. And I'll just say, they do later go back to Ephesus. So it's not like they never go into Asia again, but God at this time had a plan for them. And it was not the plan that Paul and Silas came up with. And when Paul and Silas's plan was thwarted, they didn't throw a fit. They didn't get upset over the things that they wanted to do, things that they thought were what Christ wanted them to do. They immediately sought to obey. I think that, you know, there's a point of application here is that these men, again, what were they doing when this vision happened? They weren't praying for a vision. It seems to me like it surprised them. And these sorts of visions are few and far in between. Acts takes place over about three decades. And uh, these sorts of things do not happen often. Paul and Silas took initiative to spread the gospel, which is something that Christ told us to do in his will, and we can, we can read it for ourselves. Paul and Silas had taken initiative to do what they understood Christ wanted them to do. And as they did that, as they were trying to be obedient to him, the Holy Spirit gave them particular direction. And I believe that that is the same thing that happens in our lives. There's a scripture that I really love. I think it's a very famous one that Jesus says we are salt and light. Something that my mom cooks for me is beans and cornbread. And I put, bean, I put salt on beans. I don't put salt on cornbread. I don't know anybody that does. 
if we are salt, then God is a chef and he puts salt in the places that he wants and the amounts that he wants. That means for us, we are in the place that God wanted us and the amounts that God wanted us to be in. We may think there's a lot of Christians in some places and not a lot in others. God will give you direction where it is he wants you to go and he will put you specifically in the places that he wants to put you. I have put too much salt in beans before. I don't think God does that. We can trust him. I guess what I'm trying to say is you have, right now, you have enough information to obey the Lord. We don't have to wait on a PowerPoint or a slideshow or a divine revelation of mystery. God has put you in the place that he wants you to be in. And what he's asking you is to just to do what he said. And if you trust him, as you do that, he will give you direction through his Holy Spirit. I believe that wholeheartedly. And that is exactly what Paul and Silas were doing. And as they were trying to obey, the Holy Spirit gave them a more clear direction. And they immediately let go of their plans. With, they held them with open hands, guys. And they let go of their plans and sought to obey what the Holy Spirit was directing them to do. The info that they had, they were acting on it. And that is what, that's what I want us to see. We can act on the information that Christ has given us. And if you don't think you have enough information, it's here. We can look personally at his word. You can read for yourself the things that he said, the kind of things that he wants us to be doing. It's not, actually, it's not a mystery. It, in times past, it has been a mystery. And I will say that it is supernatural, but it's not mystical. God's word is printed and it's, it's not changing. You can buy it and you can read it for yourself. You know, something else I say is the way that they obeyed, they obeyed on Christ's terms, not theirs. If we set the terms for obedience, if, you know, Paul and Silas, they were doing what they were doing right. If the Holy Spirit hadn't forbidden them or whatever, it might seem like they were doing the right thing. If they were to set the terms for obedience and say, no, we were doing what you, what you said. If, if we redefine the terms and then do that, we cannot say that we're obedient to the Lord. We must be obedient to him on his terms. Not necessarily the terms that we like, the way that we feel about things, we make plans or whatever, but we must hold them with open hands and allow the Lord total control and obey him on his terms. I uh, want to make one more point about uh, just these first few verses and then we'll move on. I'm going to be quick this morning, guys. I have one supplemental passage. That is my olive branch to you guys. My peace offering is that we're only going to look at one supplemental. So, and uh, we're going to look at it now, and I'm going to go through it quick. And uh, before we get to it, though, I want to say, in this passage, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. I think it's called the Spirit of Jesus. Now, why? why is, yeah, so it's called the Spirit of Jesus. That's right. This is the only time in the New Testament that this exact phrase appears. It's called the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of truth. It's called a few things, but in this passage, it's called the Spirit of Jesus. Why? I'll tell you what I think. I believe, the guy who wrote this, his name is Luke, I believe Luke wants to establish in our minds, the readers, a link between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we have a word for this, and it's not just limited to those two. I think many of you probably know this word. We say trinity. Trinity means comes from two words, tri, meaning three, like a triangle or a tricycle, or, and unity, which means one. So as Christians, what we believe is that God is three and he is one. It sounds like a logical contradiction, and it would be if I said that God was one in the same way that he is three. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Christians say. We say that God is one in his essence, nature, or being. Those are 
basically synonyms. And in that, he is simple, unity, one. So we can affirm what the Bible says in the Old Testament. The Shema says that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We believe that entirely. And we can also believe that God has revealed himself in three persons. God is one in his essence, nature, or being, and he, is, he subsists, his essence subsists or exists in three persons. These are language that we've used to explain what we see in the Bible, which is that God has clearly revealed himself as one and yet as three. This is how we understand that. We use words like Trinity to help us explain probably what is the most complicated thing that we believe as Christians, that God is three persons, three subsistences of one divine essence, nature, being, however you want to say that. God is three and he is one. And so when we see the, the spirit of Jesus, it's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not Jesus. Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not Jesus. And these names tell us something about them. The, we say the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. These names are not arbitrary. They weren't just assigned to God and we really can't know anything. No, these names actually tell us something about God. God the Father. He's the Father because he begat Jesus. Not in the same way that we beget somebody or like somebody is born. It's not the same because then it would mean that Jesus was created. And that is not what the Bible teaches. So we say that Jesus was eternally begotten from the nature of the Father. And that the Spirit is eternally sent from the Father and the Son. Jesus is begotten, not made. Paul, in other places, says that Jesus is Lord. Sometimes the Bible says that the Father is Lord. And I want to read a couple of verses to you guys from 2 Corinthians. This is my only supplemental. It's just two verses. And this is what it says. Now the Lord is the Spirit, how about that? And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Now the Lord is the Spirit. Is the Spirit the Lord? Is Jesus the Lord? Is the Father the Lord? In his essence, being or nature, God is one. And the Holy Spirit, Jesus the Son, God the Father, are all divine. They all have the same essence. It exists in three persons, yet it is not divisible. I've heard it said that God is like three golden statues. And they're different statues, but they're made up of pure gold. And so they have this essence, this being in common. But if that was the case, then you could have two statues that have more gold than the third one. And you could like maybe split those statues up. And so then you could, you, you could, you know, you could take a statue's hand from it and it would be less than it was before. God is not divisible. He is simple in his unity. That's a word that the church has used for a long time to explain the nature of God. You know, I have a left hand and a right hand. And my left hand is not my right hand, and I could lose them both, and I would still be me. I don't want to, but I assure you, I would still be me. I would still have to pay the taxes. The government would not give me a, you know, I would still, I would still have to do all the things that's required of me. I would still be me. God is not made up of parts that he would gain or lose or be divided. And in that example as well, you know, the three statues are one thing, and the gold is the fourth the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit don't have this nature of God and they split up between the three. That's not what we're talking about. And the word Trinity is a great word because God is unified. He is simple, yet he is three. Uh, and so when we see things like 
the Spirit of Jesus. Then we see scriptures that say things like the Spirit is Lord. When we see these things, we understand that what is being talked about, what's being spoken of here, is something called the Trinity. There's something you guys can look up if you want. You can Google this. I'm not going to read it to you now. But there's a creed that was produced by the church a long time ago. There were a lot of questions that were being asked about. Was Jesus created? And some people said that, he, that God made Jesus. And some people said that he always existed. There's something that was that so you can easily find it. It's called the Nicene Creed. N-I-C-E-N-E. I would encourage you to Google that, read it later. It's really powerful. It's a statement about the Trinity, about who the Father is, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and how we relate to them. It's really good. I'm not going to read it now. It's a little tangential to my point. Um, but I just wanted to make a little point about the Spirit of Jesus. I hope you see in this first point, though, that as we seek to obey the revealed will of Christ, which we have access to, the Holy Spirit will guide you in your endeavors. We'll move on to the next point. And uh, I believe in the next point, what I hope you see is that the gospel is for all. And I could say the gospel is for all kinds of people. We're going to see three different people interact with the gospel, what it does for them. And these three people, I don't think they're chosen at random. And I don't think they're the only people who responded to the gospel here. But Luke shared their stories because they each have something to tell about the kind of people that that the gospel is for. And I think the conclusion that we're going to come to is that the gospel is for all kinds of people. The first that we see is a lady named Lydia, and I'm just going to read a few verses. I'm going to look at 11 through 15, and we're going to see a little bit about this woman who's named Lydia, or called Lydia. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to, to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading colony of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. That's significant. We'll come back to that. And we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So, having been called to go into Macedonia, they went. And they arrived at Philippi. Where is Philippi? Is it in Rome? Is it in Greece? It's in Macedonia. Yet, it is a Roman colony. That's a a detail that Luke gave us, and he had a reason for giving us that. That's going to come up later. So, that's just a hint. Um, it's a Roman colony. And when they get there, as is commonly Paul's custom, is that he's going to find Jews to preach to first, and then he's going to spread, expand his mission. And the place he goes, he goes to a riverside where he suspects there'll be a place of prayer. And how about that? His suspicion was right. And what it says is he spoke with the women who were gathered there. What is likely the case is that there were not many Jews in Philippi. Probably wasn't a synagogue. It was just a place of prayer. They would have been at the riverside because that would have been a place where they could have met the demands of the ritual washings that needed to take place. Not all that is necessarily important for us to understand, but it was all part of Paul. He suspected that this would be the place they were, and sure enough, he knew. He might have asked around, who knows, but the, the, the short of it is he ended up where they were having this place of prayer. And there he met this woman named Lydia, and we get two valuable pieces of information about her. The first is that she sold purple fabrics, which is... It might seem arbitrary to you, but it's not arbitrary. This tells us something about the kind of business, the kind of person that she was, the social status that she had. If, if we say purple fabrics or purple robes, does that bring any, are there any other stories in the Bible that makes you think of something about 
purple robe. There may be more than one that you think of. But for me, the first one that I think of is the crucifixion of Christ. When he is mocked, because he claimed to be a king, and they mocked him. They put a crown on his head, not a golden crown or a silver one. They put a crown of thorns. And on him, they put a what? They put a robe, a mock they, because they wanted to mock him, his claims to kingship, they put a purple robe on him. Some things say it was a scarlet robe, whatever, whichever one it was, it was mocking him. And it was whether it was purple or not, it was mocking the purple robes that the nobles wore. So the fact that she dealt in purple robes meant that she had a wealthy clientele. And she was dealing in something that was a luxury item, not an everyday necessity. I assure you, you do not need purple robes to live in Philippi. This was not an everyday deal. So we're talking about a woman of high social standing in contact with wealthy individuals, maybe even royalty. So that's a little bit about her. The next thing it says is that she was a God worshiper or worshiper of God. And what this likely means is that she was a Gentile, not a Jew, who had either converted to Judaism or was sympathetic or at the very least interested. That's, those are the things we know about her. And then what it says next is very interesting. It says that she listened she listened. She chose to do that. But it was the Lord who opened her heart to respond. And who did she respond to? Did the Lord speak to her? Was the Lord the one who spoke? Who spoke? The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by who? By Paul. Paul preached. Yet it was the Lord who worked through his words. Lydia listened, and yet it was the Lord who opened her heart to understand what is required from us, the success and failure of our mission is not based on our effort. What is required of us is obedience to God, to do as he's asked us. And in, when we do that, we see that God takes care of the success of his mission. He has a plan, and he will see that the particulars of his plan are accomplished. We see in Lydia's life that she did chose to listen. She didn't have to listen. She could have ignored him. She could have rejected him. She could argue, whatever. She chose to listen, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things not that God said, but that Paul said. We consistently see that God chooses to use people. He chooses to use us. He could do whatever he wanted. He chooses to use people to spread the message. And he works through our efforts. He works through the things that we do in the hearts of other individuals. And, they, and as he does that, that, people respond to the gospel. It's not a problem of persuasion or getting someone the information, saying the right things, it is a spiritual conundrum. Something I say is that, you know, if it was just about the information, the whole world would believe in Christ. Our claim, the things that we believe, that we make historical claims. One of them is that Christ was resurrected. That is a falsifiable claim. What I mean by that is that it, if we have claimed something that either happened or did not happen, and it could be proven or disproven. And we are saying that that happened based on the testimony of history, because we weren't there, based on the testimony of history and of God himself and his word. We are saying that we believe that this historical claim actually happened. There is good enough reason to believe that, that what the word says happened really did. When you uh, write the date down, what year do you write? 2021. 2021 since what? 2021 since what happened? Jesus changed the world. And every time you fill out a paper, every time you sign a check, not so many checks have been signed these days, but every time you write the date, you testify to the fact that Christ was a real person and we make historical claims. 
my point is this. If it was about information, the whole world would believe. It's not about the information. We must trust the Lord to work. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and they are talking about sharing the gospel to Mormons. And uh, in 2021, there's a lot of information available on Mormonism, what they believe, the, the men who started it, the kind of people they were, the kind of things they had, whether or not they were credible. Um, and I have come to the conclusion that there is no excuse in 2021 to not have seen this information. The problem is, guys, that it's not that people are not seeing the info. It's a spiritual situation. If somebody is blind and you shine a light in their eyes, they're not going to see the light. I was talking about Mormons. I want to read you a quote. And this is a guy named Brigham Young. He was the second president of the Church of Latter-day Saints. That's what the Mormons call their church. And uh, this is something that he said. This guy was not just some Mormon giving his opinion. He was a president after Joseph Smith. And he had the ability to speak with authority on matters to teach. And I just want to read you. This is something that he said. And this quote that I'm about to read was not hard to find. This was very easy to find. I just want to read it. The only men who become gods, even the sons of God, are those who enter into polygamy. I could stop there. I'm not going to keep going. Others attain unto a glory and may even be permitted to come into the presence of the Father and the Son, but they cannot reign as kings in glory because they have blessed, offered unto them, and they refuse to accept them. Brigham Young said that in 1867. There's information out there, and it's not based on whether people know these things. It is whether or not Christ is working. So what is required of us is obedience, and we trust the Lord. We trust the Lord, but it's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual situation. That's what I'm trying to impress on you guys. These sorts of quotes are very easy to find, and they're not restricted to Mormons. If we think through what the Mormons are saying on their own terms, what they're saying cannot be true. And this applies to every other religion in the world. If we allow them to speak for themselves, what they're saying cannot be true. That is the case, whether you're talking about Jehovah's Witness, Islam, atheism, whatever it may be. Even on their own terms, they cannot explain the world that they live in. And they inconsistently answer these things. And if your answers are consistent, something you're saying has got to be wrong. It's not about information. That's the point that I'm trying to make. Salvation is God's work, and we must understand that it is a spiritual battle. The work that we do for the Lord, what Paul and Silas were doing, the trials that they were on, the things they were doing, require the Lord to work, and what was required of them was obedience to the Lord. That's the point I wanted to make. Something else I want to say about Lydia, as she responded, we see immediate change in her behavior. We recognize in her life she was immediately changed by the gospel. She said, if, I, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, please come and stay in my home. While you're here in Philippi, I will take care of you. Come and stay with my household. And what happened? She said, if you judge me to be faithful, come and stay. And did they? They did. Based on her testimony, based on what they saw, they did. They did. They judged. They said, okay, seems legit. We see immediate change in her life. This is what the gospel does. Immediate change in Lydia's behavior. We're going to look. So we see one type of person in Lydia, someone who is self-sufficient, high social standing. There's no man mentioned here, which leads me to believe she was either a widow or divorced. Uh, divorce did happen. It was less common then, but it did happen. Um, so I think she was probably a widow. You know, you might think she was neither, but she had a household. Uh, I, I'm not going to act like I know all the details about that, but I know it takes two. There at some point had been a man. 
And she had a home, and she was, with all the situations, she was taking care of them and was even able to take care of others. We're talking about a woman who was capable, who did not need help. She did not need their assistance, and yet she understood the call to follow the Lord required submission. Someone of high social status. We might say she was a proto-girl boss. That's my contemporary uh, label for her. So let's move on to the next person who is very unlike Lydia. And we're just going to read 16, 17, and 18. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, so they were going back to where they had previously been. We're going to the place of prayer. A slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. So we see that, first off, we see this girl was not wealthy. She was not someone of high social status. She had been enslaved. And her, the people who were her masters were using her for profit because she had this spirit of divination. Now, the Bible consistently speaks against this sort of thing. Divination, it's called sorcery or fortune-telling. People still do try and do this stuff today. Um, and what I'll say is that what was, what was going on in her was I don't think that it was a gimmick. I don't think she was making things up. I think we are, what we're reading about was really a spiritual situation that was taking place. And in a sense, I do think these sorts of things do still happen. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. If you want to do a word study on divination, that is really interesting. I would encourage you to do that. Go check it out. Um, because there in the Greek world, this sort of thing happened all the time, and they did not think it was bad. They thought this was a good thing. They had all kinds of words and explanations for this, and people did it. Uh, you've probably seen movies where this took place. I've seen at least one. It's called 300. This is exactly the sort of thing that was taking place here. This girl was, was because she had the spirit, she was being taken advantage of. Enslaved is what it says. She was a slave. And, uh, you know, when we read the thing that she said at a glance, it actually sounds like she's corroborating what they're saying. I'm just going to read it again. What does she say? These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Right? I mean, that's exactly what's happening. But so, for some reason, though, Paul did not like what was happening here. And this is what I'll say to you guys. There are a lot of places in the world you could go and you could say, hey, God loves you so much, and he sent his son who died for you, and if you believe in him, you know, you'll, he'll take care of you. You'll go to heaven, whatever. And they'll say, okay, I believe that. And that does not mean you made them a Christian. That does not mean they've become a Christian. There are places in the world where they have so many gods they believe in that how could they possibly know them all? Thank you so much for bringing it to letting us know. We'll add this to the list. We'll, be, we'll make sure to pay respect to this one. We would not want to offend this one. You know, and they're, they're always competing for number one spot. So apparently your guy's on top now. We will make sure to show him respect. When we see what she said, we see that with modern Western eyes. Not necessarily the same ones that this Macedonians living in Philippi, a Roman colony. You think what you know about Roman mythology, they believed in all kinds of gods and idols and things like that. So what she said it did not corroborate Paul's message. And it sounds like it does. I get that. It sounds like it does. And in a sense, it might actually have. But for those men and women who heard what she said, it's confusing at best. 
And at worst, it is actually conflicting with what Paul was saying because Paul is actually saying what she's doing is wrong. That there is one God, not many. The idols, the things that you understand to be gods are not gods. They are actually nothing. What is an idol made of wood or stone? Jamar preached about this recently. They're nothing. There's nothing to them. But there are demons at work behind these things. And so for this girl to make a prophecy about them or just tell fortune or whatever you want to call that, to give some divination about them, and then what was she going to do after that? She would go and continue giving, giving these prophecies and fortunes and all sorts of things to these people who were doing idolatry, practicing these things. At best, what she said was confusing. At worst, it conflicted with the message that's being preached. I know it's hard for us to maybe see that at first glance, but that's because we are a little far removed from what was actually taking place in Philippi at that time. We have to be willing to give up our modern Western way of understanding and to look at it in a historical, grammatical way. And then we can see a universal application, universal principle, I should say, from this. But that's not necessarily my point. So because this was causing problems, confusion, whatever it may be, Paul was decided that he was going to cast the spirit out of this girl. And remember I said in the Greek world, these kind of spirits were not considered evil things. That doesn't mean they weren't, but they weren't considered. They were considered to be good. And after Paul cast the spirit out of her, it went. And her, the men who enslaved her now are going to be upset, and we're going to get to that in a minute. Uh, but what I just want to make a point about this. This young girl was literally enslaved. She was physically and spiritually enslaved. Um, and that sort of thing is still happening today. Slavery still exists. Uh, I think it is probably um, disproportionately feminine. I can't prove that, but I think it's probably true. Um, there are still people who are forced into slavery, literal slavery, I think spiritual slavery still exists, and I want to say another category of mental slavery. What I mean by that is that individuals who are taught things, most likely by others, that suit the interests of others. That's what slavery is, right? And so then these ideas are held, and I, I use the term mental slavery, and I understand that that is not something that only happens to women. That's just the way it was here. But I do want to say something uh, real quick before I move on. In the garden, when I say the garden, I'm talking about the beginning, in the garden, who did Satan, who did he target? Was it Adam? He targeted Adam. Satan targeted Eve. He consistently works in this kind of way. And I think that the gospel gives us real answers to the kind of slavery we see in the world. And I'm not only talking about mental slavery, but I am talking about that. I'm also talking about spiritual and literal slavery. And the gospel gives us answers, real answers, to these kinds of problems. We see with this slave girl, we see someone who is at the bottom of the social ladder, and yet the gospel worked powerfully in her life, not just Lydia. Lydia was well off. This girl was not. The gospel worked in both of their situations, and again, changed their life in a powerful way. And I'm not telling you this slave girl believed in the gospel. We don't know that. I would like to think that she does. Regardless of whether she believed or not, it changed her life. It changed her life. We'll keep going and we'll see this next guy. Uh, and I'm going to read a few verses. I'm going to read 19 to 34. This guy was a jailer. So jail is about to be introduced. That's uh, not always a great thing. Let's read it. 19 to 34. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. Remember why they'd seized them. Remember why. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, 
these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. Is that what happened? Anyways, the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. That is a distinctly Roman punishment. Just a little Bible trivia for y'all. Um, yeah, so when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were worrying and crying and anxiously pleading in... Wait, that's not what it says. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake. What a coincidence. How about that? There came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. The first thing I want to say is that we see that Paul and Silas were brought on false charges. They were lied on. And what I'm going to say to you is, get used to it. Jesus says that the world hated me first. You think they're going to treat you any different? If you want to live like me, if you want to follow me, Jesus, if you want to follow him and live like him, why should we expect to be treated differently? Paul and Silas were lied on, and we're just going to have to get used to it. So they get beaten, thrown in jail, and they are given, the jailer is given specific instructions that these are, these are real criminals. And he puts them in the inner jail and puts stocks on their feet, which does not sound nice to me. Uh, yeah, uh, doesn't, I don't know how you'd sleep in a situation like that. And it seems like they weren't too worried about how they're going to sleep. They were not anxious, crying, pleading innocence with the dog with the key, and they were whistling. That's not what was happening. They were praying and singing praise, and the prisoners were listening. And when, and when they were doing this, the craziest thing happened. There was a, it was a, how lucky were they? What a coincidence that there was an earthquake. No, it wasn't luck. It wasn't a coincidence. This was miraculous. There was an earthquake. What I think, though, the thing that happened after this is actually the real miracle. Now, I recognize saying that, that this earthquake is a real miracle. What happened after this, though, is it so powerful that it makes the earthquake seem like a small thing. The Roman soldier, the Roman jailer, Seeing that the doors were opened, he comes to the conclusion that the, that the prisoners have gone. And so he draws his sword, and he's going to take his own life. The consequence for losing a prisoner apparently is death, and he decides he wants to die on his own terms. Not, he's not going to be killed. He wants to die his way. And Paul and Silas, well, the jailer, right, is an obstacle to their freedom. He represents a thing that is keeping them from being free. And this obstacle to their freedom is about to be removed. 
and they step in and stop what he's doing. Why would they do that? If they really wanted to get out of jail, what do they need to do? Just wait a minute. Just chill for a second, and they could do whatever they wanted to do. For some reason, they showed genuine care for this man who was their oppressor. There is a lot of talk in America right now about oppressors and oppressed, and in case you didn't know, you are one or the other. Christ loved his oppressors, his persecutors, and so did Paul and Silas. They showed radical love for a man who was directly responsible for their real, legitimate oppression. They had real wounds. They suffered personally, not someone 100 years before, 200, 300, 400 years before. They suffered themselves. They didn't just suffer. They weren't just, somebody didn't just talk bad about them, spread rumors. They were beaten and jailed. They were lied on too. They were literally oppressed. Yet, they showed compassion for their oppressor. If we say we follow Christ, we do not get to determine who is and who is not worthy of our love. If we believe that we are made in God's image and all people are made in God's image, even oppressors, real or imagined, our oppressors deserve, I say deserve, love because they are made in God's image and Christ cares about them. The, the fact that this man oppressed them does not change the fact that we are called to show love even to our oppressors. I could talk about, I could go more into that, but the point is this, that we do not get to discriminate who it is that we are supposed to love. We don't get to determine that. If somebody does something that we consider less than human, an inhumane action, we do not get to treat them like they are less of a human. We don't get to do that. Or maybe it's based on some kind of mental heuristic or prejudice that we have. We do not get to hold those kind of things. We don't get to do that. If we come to Christ on his terms, we must be willing to love even our oppressors. That's what Paul and Silas did. And they did not do this because they wanted to get out of jail. If they wanted to get out of jail, there was a more expedient way to do that. There was a simpler option for them. And they did not take that. Instead, they showed love for this man. I believe thinking that probably meant they would stay in prison. And the subtext, the subtext here, what we're going to see is that they actually do go back to jail, but we're going to get to that. Something that we see once again is that the gospel brings immediate change to the jailer's life. He feeds, he brings them out, he washes their wounds. Who put those wounds there? Where did they come from? Who did that to him? To Paul and Silas. Who did that to them? The Romans did that. This man was a Roman. He might not have been a citizen, but he was a part of the Romans. He worked for them. He was responsible. Maybe not directly. He might not have been the one with the rod beating them, but he was part of the group responsible for the beating, and he washed their wounds in his home. That means that his wife, his children might have seen that. They might have said, well, where do these wounds come from? How do you answer that question? I am responsible. What happened, what he did, requires extreme humility, and that's what it takes to come to the Lord. We must accept, and I say the Lord because we must accept his lordship, humbly acknowledge we're, that, we, that we sin, that we must repent, and we see that this man's life was changed. He brought food before them. He washed their wounds. He was baptized, he and his whole family. We saw that also with Lydia. I didn't mention it, but 
We see that. Immediate change in their lives. We consistently see that as well. We will keep going and we'll see. Uh, you know, I hope you saw from this point, though, before I continue, that the gospel is for all kinds of people. People of high social status, low social status, employed, self-employed, unemployed, whatever. Oppressors, the oppressed. The slave girl is oppressed, right? All kinds of people. We do not discriminate. We do not determine who is receptive to the gospel. We do not determine who is worthy of God's love. We do not get to make those kinds of determinations. That's not the way it works. The gospel is for all kinds of people. That is what we see here. I don't think that these are the only individuals in Philippi who respond to the gospel. They may have been, that my point doesn't rest on that, but the point is that Luke shared these stories with us because he wanted us to see all kinds of people coming to faith, whether they were worked for the government, whether they were self-employed, whatever. All kinds of people coming to faith. The last point I want to make is that the church should be your priority and you might notice that the church, the word church is not, you're not going to see it. Uh, so I will, I am prepared to defend why that's my point. But let's just read these next few verses, 35 through 40. And we'll see this last little bit what happens. Now when day came, the chief magistrate sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, Come out now and go in peace. I thought they were in his home. Anyways, but Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison. Now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed. Let them bring themselves, let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans, and they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city, and they immediately left. Oh, that's not what it says. And they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So Paul and Silas now reveal that they are Roman citizens. When, when Paul and Barnabas split and he chose Silas, you think he chose him because he's a Roman citizen? He didn't even know at that time that they were going to Philippi, which was a Roman colony. It's crazy how that worked out. What a coincidence, right? Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. And what happened to them was illegal. In Rome, Roman citizens could not be beaten with rods without a public trial. And even with the trial, that was usually not something that happened to Roman citizens. What happened to them was, by their laws, illegal. It wasn't supposed to happen. So this is my question to you. I have two questions, actually. Why didn't they mention that earlier? They could have avoided a beating. They, were, they weren't just kind of like, they didn't, it wasn't just a switch. They had wounds. They had bruises. Like They were really hurt. They could have, if they mentioned this earlier, they could have potentially avoided a beating. Why did they not mention it earlier? And my second question is, now they're being released. Why mention it at all? Just go. Just go home. They're, they can leave. They can do whatever they want. Why mention it all? They didn't mention it when they could have avoided a beating. And now that they're free, they complicate the process by mentioning this. Why mention it now? It doesn't make sense, does it? You know, the, I told you earlier that they relied on the charges that they were brought up on were false charges. And that is true. That's actually the reason why they were brought was because they, these men were selfishly uh, using this young woman for profit. But what they accused Paul and Silas of doing, they actually were doing. Paul and Silas were, were preaching the gospel, which is that Christ is king. Not Caesar, not Caesar Augustus or Octavian or whoever. Christ is king. And to, to follow Christ 
means that your number one allegiance is to him, not to Rome. There's probably something there, but y'all can think about that on your own time. What he was telling them, what they were accused of, is actually kind of true. What they were telling them to do were things that would contradict what it meant to be a good Roman. Now, Paul and Silas were Romans, right? So you could be a Roman and be a Christian. Doesn't mean, you know, nobody says you can't. But this colony, as far removed as it was from Rome, felt the pressure. We are good Romans. We do not do the things that they say. We're good Romans, right? They weren't in the heart of Rome. They weren't in Italy. They weren't in these places where it was obvious they were Rome. They were far off, and so they felt maybe some pressure to be very Roman. Paul and Silas, when those accusations were being made, imagine they did say, well, hey, wait, wait a second, we're Romans too, guys. Could Lydia have said that? Could the young slave woman have said that? It might sound like I'm reaching. Lydia, based on her name, wasn't from around there. And I think it's very fair to assume she was not a Roman. And the slave girl, there's no reason to think she was a Roman. They could not. Those individuals could not have leveraged their citizenship for, to get out of this punishment. And so Paul and Silas, because it, it would have caused problems, for, for not for them, but for others, they took their licks because they cared about these other people. They knew that if at this point in time they preach the gospel and then when they're accused of being anti-Roman, if they say, no, no, we're Roman, it might confuse the message that they're preaching, which is that, yes, your number one allegiance is no longer to Rome, it's to Christ. That's the message they're preaching. And if they were now to say, no, no, we are Romans, we're actually Romans, it might confuse the message. And so for care, for the, the integrity of the message, and because they know that these individuals who believed could not get out of beatings because they weren't Roman, they took their licks. Having taken their licks, now that they're being released, why mention it at all? Why even bring it up? This is what I'll say. Let's just think that, let's just say that they did. They were released and they did, they just left. In the eyes of the Philippian citizens, the average person there, these men came and they caused problems. They preached this foreign message. They were beaten, sent to jail, and I never saw them again. And Hold on now, there's people who believed in that. Didn't you see what happened? That it, we are Romans, we don't do that sort of thing. No, at this point in time, earlier, Paul and Cyrus, Silas did not leverage their citizenship because it did not suit the mission. Selfishly, they could have, but they didn't because it did not suit the mission. Now, they forced the local government to admit that what they did was wrong in the public eye, that what they did was not necessarily anti-Roman, even though it, it kind of was, they forced the government to admit that what they did to them was wrong. And then they took their sweet time and they left when they were good and ready. And so their actions were not wrong. Now, whether or not the Philippian you know, magistrates acknowledged that they were right doesn't matter. God decides. But the point is this. They saw an opportunity to leverage their citizenship. Now they saw an opportunity to leverage their citizenship for the benefit of the church that would still be there after they left. If they could get a public acknowledgement, a public apology, a public acknowledgement that they were innocent, that what happened to them was wrong, then that means that even when they leave, even people who were not Roman, who would do the things they did, like what? Praising God, preaching the gospel, do the things that they did would be okay. Safe to do it, according to the local government. So they leveraged their citizenship now when it benefited the believers. Paul and Silas showed incredible concern for these individuals. And their goal, 
to come to Philippi was not to share the gospel with them, and then they all moved back to Jerusalem and joined the church? No, they wanted there to be a church in Philippi. How do I know this? Because there's a letter in the Bible that's named Philippians. It's written to the church in Philippi. They had incredible concern for the believers there, so much so that they did not leverage their citizenship for their benefit when it would have benefited them, and later, when it was, when it was complicated, they did leverage it, not for their benefit, for the benefit of the church, the nascent church in Philippi, Paul and Silas went above and beyond to prioritize the well-being of the other believers there at great personal cost. Great personal cost. The point of application here is that the local church should be of significance to you. I say local church because Paul and Silas could name by name the individuals who believed in the gospel. It wasn't some nebulous idea about the church and it's a big, you know, we're all part of it. And that is true. That is absolutely true. But Paul and Silas were concerned with a specific group of people, the Philippian believers, the nascent Philippian church, and that's why they acted. And likewise, our concern should be the local church. This is a universal application or universal principle that I believe that will result in particular application. And so what I'm not, I'm not saying to you that you have to be here every time the doors open because I understand that everyone's life, we are in different situations. And as salt and light, you put, you put light in dark places. You put salt in foods that need it. The principle is universal, and you must trust the Lord to apply it in your life. What I'm saying, though, the principle, the church should be a priority to you, and that means you have to evaluate your priorities and deal with the Lord. It's not easy. It's not an easy. I can't just say, do this, and that means you've prioritized it. That's not what I'm saying. Because Paul and Silas, when they did it, it was not simple. It's not necessarily a simple application, but they prioritized the church, and they took those opportunities for the well-being of others. That's the point of application that I have, and those are my points. I want to, you know, take a moment and review some of my points of application, and uh, then we'll be done. I'll tell you what, let's see. It is it's 1224. That's not bad. Something I want to say, though, that you that we don't, did not read here is that uh, the way that Paul got to Philippi. They sailed, and then when they landed in Macedonia, they took a road called the Via Ignatia. And maybe it's via, depending on how you understand Latin pronunciation. That doesn't matter. Um, but that road was not built by Paul and Silas. It was not built by devout Christians who wanted to share the gospel or Jews or whatever. That road was built by the Romans. And the Romans built roads all over the world. And some of those roads actually still exist today. And uh, they spoke common language. They all spoke Greek. Before the Romans built roads, before the empire and the republic, there was a Greek empire that forced everyone to speak Greek. And when the Romans took over, they said, well, speak whatever language you want. We don't care. Just whatever. And so the whole world was speaking a common language. I said the whole world. I'm talking about kind of like the ancient Near East spreading into Europe and to the East as well. They were all speaking a common language, and roads had been built. The world was prepared for the rapid expansion of Christianity. Who did that? Did the Greeks do that? Did the Romans do that? If you read between the lines, you will see that God is at work on every level. He used the Greeks. He used the Romans, the things that they did to prepare the world for the gospel. In Galatians, it says, at the fullness of the time, God sent his son. It is not arbitrary. The times in which we live are not arbitrary. The things that God has for us to do are not arbitrary. He uses all these things. And if you will read between the lines, you will see that God is at work on every level. I did not read this about the Via Ignatia. I didn't read this in here. 
The point I'm making is that God has spoken clearly here, but evidence is all around us of the work that he's doing. If we will pay attention, we will see that God is at work on every level. There's a proverb that I really love, and we're reading through Proverbs. Alan read from Proverbs 8 earlier, uh, and there's a particular one that I really love. Solomon is the guy who that book is attributed to. Uh, he didn't necessarily write it, but it's attributed to him. And he's walking past the vineyard, and he looks at the fence, and the fence is kind of dilapidated, it's broken down, and it's grown over, and the vineyard is in a terrible state. And Solomon says, I looked and I learned. I saw the state of the wall and the state of the vineyard, and I learned a lesson. If we have eyes to see, God will teach us. If we are willing to read between the lines and to be learners, a wise man will listen to wisdom and grow wiser still. If we are willing to do that, God will teach us incredible things. His word is truly good. Another point of application is that you should take initiative to spread the gospel. Paul and Silas were taking initiative to do what they understood Christ asking them to do, which was to spread the gospel. And as they did that, the Holy Spirit gave them particular direction. This is the exact same situation we are in. If you will take, take initiative to spread the gospel, trusting God, trusting the Holy Spirit, He will give you particular direction about exactly what it is that He wants you to do. If you will just start with His Word and trust Him, do as He asks you to do, He will take care of the rest. You can trust He's going to take care of the rest. I want to share a little bit about my specific situation. Uh, I used to live in Japan. Some of you may or may not have known that. Um, I was there for two years. And Japan is in Asia by any standard, modern or ancient. It is about as far as you can go that way. Um, and I actually currently am in the process of going back. I have everything ready. My visa, everything is prepared. But at the moment, they will not approve it because of COVID situation and complications, whatever. I find myself in almost the exact same situation that Paul and Silas were in. My plan is to go to Asia. That's my plan. I, my plan was to go in June, and it is August the 8th. When I bought this Bible years ago, this story was printed in it. I, did, I didn't read it for the first time last week or two weeks ago, whenever Jamar asked me to preach. I did not read it for the first time. Yet, in spite of that, God's Word is incredibly timely. It is so good. As I read this, I'm not saying that every time you read God's Word, you're going to come in the exact situation that you're in. Well, earlier I told you that Luke did not feel the need to talk about the way that the Holy Spirit spoke to him, just that he did. What I'm telling you is if you will trust Christ and his word, the Holy Spirit will direct you. My plan, I had a plan. I still have a plan. And continually, consistently has been thwarted. And I have had to recognize that the Lord has a plan for me right now that is not necessarily what I thought. And I must accept on Christ's terms, not mine. This is the same for each of us. We must accept Christ, what he wants us to do on his terms, not ours. The way the Holy Spirit directs us, we come up with plans. And my plan to go to Japan, I don't think it was my plan. I think the Holy Spirit initially gave it to me, and I trust that when the time is right, I will go. But I understand that the Holy Spirit has given me direction, and he, I'm telling you, will do the same thing. Just as it happened with Paul and Silas. Even if I wasn't experiencing any of the things I'm experiencing now, we see the consistent message of the Bible is that as we do what Christ has asked us to do, the Holy Spirit will direct us. 
But what I'm encouraged to do is take initiative to spread the gospel. Now, you may, if you want to spread the gospel, you need to what? You need to understand it. You need to know the gospel. Our mission here at Word, I say this every Sunday because I do the welcome, um, is to, what is it? To love God, to something, impact the world. What is that middle piece? Love God, something, the church, I'll give you a hint. Love God, the church, impact the world. What is that word I'm missing? What do we say? Equip. Love God, equip the church to impact the world. If you do not feel prepared, or let me use a different word, equipped to share the gospel, guess what? You're in the right place. You're in the right place. Jamar's job is not to impact the world by himself. That is our job. The Christian life is not a showdown at high noon. I really love Westerns, but it's not what's going on. It's not me with the plate in the poncho waiting. I'm not going to say what movie that's from, so it's not a spoiler. It's not a showdown at high noon. We are together. If you do not feel prepared, that's what we're here for, to equip so that together we will do what? Impact the world starting in our backyard. If we believe that we are salt and light, that means we believe God has put us in the place where he wants us. And what he's asked for us to be is salt and light in our place. You will be equipped. We want to equip you so that you can succeed in the calling that the Lord has put on your life. In the thing, in the places where you're at, your family, your job, your friends, your hobbies, the things that you do, that you will succeed in doing as the Lord has asked you. That's what we want to happen. We want you to succeed, and that is our job, to help you succeed in obeying the Lord's calling. Not in an egocentric way, not because we want to build you up, make you some great thing, because that's what the Lord wants. We want to equip you so that you will succeed in your calling from the Lord. Another thing I'll say is that if we share the gospel, we have confidence, not in ourselves, not in our abilities. We have confidence in the Lord. Think about Lydia. Paul preached, but it was the Lord who used what he said. Lydia listened, but it was the Lord who opened her heart to respond. We have confidence when we share the gospel with our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, maybe somebody who's a different religion, who, go, who lives down the street, whatever. When we share the gospel with these people, we have confidence that the Lord will work. We do not determine the parameters of success or failure. The Lord does. And sometimes we will look like fools. And you have to accept that. Because Paul and Silas did. Did Christ, was he ever made to look like a fool? If we put a cross on top of our building, what, is it, what happened on the cross? If we say we follow Christ, we must accept that on his terms, success and failure will happen. And on our part, what is required of us is to be obedient. On his terms, obedience. And he will take care of what he wants to do. The particulars of the mission, he will see to that. We must be obedient to him. And you, in that sense, can have total confidence in the Lord. You can have total confidence in what he's doing. What else I'll say is that you can share what you know. You can share. Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. Was that an accident? They, I don't think they planned that whole deal about being, it happened, just happened upon a Roman colony, and now they get to use that. The Lord will put you in the right places. And even if you don't understand that, even if you don't sense that, just please, you've got to trust him that that's the case. We see that he is sovereign. That applies to our lives as well. He will put you in the places to share what you know. And the last thing I'll say about that is that we want to equip you. We want to see you succeed. And that's what we're here for. Uh, I just have a couple more points of application. The last one, or the next last one, is that the church should be a priority. It was a priority to these men, Paul and Silas. 
And uh, you might have noticed at a certain point in this story that instead of the word they, talking about Paul and Silas and Timothy, it started saying the word we. Go back and read that again and look for the word we. Luke, the guy who wrote this, actually joined them at a certain point. Um, and that's just a little bit of trivia. You ever doing Bible trivia? Now you got a little, you got a weapon. You got an extra tool. So that's just, that was totally free. Um, but the church was a priority to these guys. They willingly suffered. Not just missing out on something they wanted to do. They didn't just miss out on a little bit of sleep. They didn't just miss out on the plans they could have made. They willingly, they were beaten. And then when they were going to be free, they complicated the process because the church was a priority to them, and it ought to be a priority to you as well. Um, the last thing I want to say, and before I say that, we will have a time of response. And, uh, you, you know, I've said a lot of maybe points of application, and to be honest, if I didn't have them written down, I probably would not have remembered them all. Uh, and so as, you know, we think about these things, we listen to the Holy Spirit and respond in the way that the Lord is leading us. And so as we think about this word, we think personally, the Lord has, we see what Luke wanted us to see in this passage, and we respond in the way that we're being directed by the word, by God, and His, and his Holy Spirit illumines it to us. Um, something that we see in this specifically was that the gospel changed the lives of all kinds of people. And the question I want to ask is, has it changed yours? I'm not asking if you've heard the gospel. I'm not asking if you know about it. I'm not asking, you know, could you tell to me the details? I'm asking has it changed your life? It changed the life of Lydia, of the slave girl, of the Roman jailer. Has it changed your life? When we respond to the gospel in faith and repentance, something that Paul says consistently is that Jesus is Lord of everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That means Jesus, Jesus is completely Lord even over his critics. But we have the opportunity to respond in faith and submission to him. Have you done that? The gospel can change lives. Has it changed yours? I'm going to pray, and we will have a time of response. Father, we are so thankful for the way that you've worked in our lives and just the things that you've done. We recognize that at the right time, you sent your son. And uh, even though we are many years removed from that, we pray that you give us a great faith. As we see you continually working in the world around us, we ask you to give us eyes to see that as well that you would put us in the places that you want us, that we would see that and do the things you've asked us to do, Lord. We want to trust you in a deep and intimate way. And so I pray for each of us here as we think about your word, as we think about you, that we would be obedient to what you called us, to the places you called us, that we would be able to discern accurately what is you want us to do. Lord, we love you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I hope God spoke to you during the message today. We want to know about it. You can fill out a connection card at wordbaptist.com slash connection card. We want to help you through any spiritual questions you may have while you're on this journey. You see, we believe that the first step is for a person to give their life to Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear that the greatest need that humanity has is to be saved. And that the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. If you will agree with God, that you need him for the forgiveness of your sins and you will turn to him in repentance and believe in him, uh, you will be saved. The Bible says that you do this by one, believing that Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead and that you believe that his payment is sufficient for you, that if you will call out to him as Lord and Savior, he will save you. If you're listening to this service and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come and be our guest during a time of worship. We have multiple services. We would love to meet you personally and have you here for worship. You can check us out at wordbaptist.com for service times.
If you've missed any sermons, they're all archived there online, so you can go back and watch them. You can connect with us on social media at Word Baptist. If you would like to invest in the ministry and continue the spread of the gospel, you can give online at wordbaptist.com give. I'm so grateful that you've joined us today, and I hope you've learned something that you can apply to your life, and we hope to see you again next time right here at Word Baptist Church.